the privilege to return to our All the Feels series. If you have your Bible, please take it and open to Exodus 20, verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17. As we said, we are in our All the Feels series, and tonight we're looking at the topic of jealousy and discontentment. Jealousy and discontentment. Exodus chapter 20, as you know, consists of the Ten Commandments. This is God establishing for himself a brand new people, and in establishing a brand new people, he enters into a covenant with them. And this covenant has certain rules and stipulations. Some of the most primary and chief of those rules and stipulations he presents to Israel at the beginning of this covenant And we know these as the Ten Commandments. Now, there was more to the law than just the Ten Commandments, but these are the high points. In fact, many have pointed out that the remainder of the Pentateuch, especially the book of Deuteronomy, is actually an exposition and fleshing out of the Ten Commandments. And I know that if I were to ask most of you in the room, what are the Ten Commandments, you could tell me most, if not all of them. But I'd be willing to bet that if you're like me, you might think that some of them are worse than others. Violating some of them is a worse sin in God's eyes than others. And it is true that God will hold certain sinners more accountable than other sinners. We talked about this this morning in our Grace Life class. Somebody asked a great question. It'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those wicked Pharisees and those who followed the wicked Pharisees who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. So in one sense... There are degrees of punishment, but in another very real sense, there are no small sins with God. There are no small sins with God. Yes, we see in the Ten Commandments, verse 13, you shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But here's one that rounds out the ten that sometimes is overlooked. Or when we're confronted with it in our own lives, we tend to excuse it away, maybe shove it under the rug. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting, discontentment, jealousy, envy, greed, These are synonymous terms. Yes, there's nuances that separate these terms. We'll cover that a little bit, but they all cover roughly the same general topic, wanting something you don't have or seeking to hold on to something you do have but willing to sin to do it, valuing things above God. If we're honest, we can point to many places in our lives where we see this creeping up like weeds in a flower bed. This is what Paul points to in his own life in Romans chapter 7. Of all the sins Paul could point out when he's recounting his own testimony of how he recognized that he was a sinner lost before a holy God, what sin does Paul zero in on in his own personal recounting of his testimony? Coveting. Romans 7, verse 7, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Paul even points out that he, at one point in his life, wrestled with this sin. 
And for us, especially in our culture, very materialistic, possessions-driven culture, we give into this sin far often than I think we're willing to acknowledge. We struggle with jealousy in the most silly, sometimes shameful ways, don't we? Summertime, people are going on vacations. People post their vacations on social media. The guy who vacations at Cheney Lake is envious of the guy who goes to Table Rock Lake. The guy who goes to Table Rock Lake is envious of the guy who goes to the Gulf Coast. The guy who goes to the Gulf Coast is envious of the guys who go to Kauai or Oahu. We're a culture defined by wanting more. We want more things. We want better things. We're defined by our accumulation of stuff. This hit me last October of just how I, I was blind to how guilty I was in this area in my own life after my missions trip to Uganda. That's not the main point of a missions trip, but it's one of those, hopefully, a sanctifying benefit of a missions trip is being exposed to the differences of what your life is like here versus what other people's lives are like overseas. Contrast sets things into perspective. And when you visit a culture like Uganda or another third world culture, you cannot, unless you are willingly putting blinders on, you cannot but be confronted with the fact that you have so much more than most of the world has. Now, I'm not denying that even in our church, there are people who struggle with finances. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize that. I know that it's hard times for some of you every month to make ends meet. I'm not dismissing that at all. But when you compare what the average American has, even the average American near the lower end of the spectrum, to what most of the world has to endure every day, we saw people in Uganda who literally have nothing and are reliant upon the kindness of strangers to feed them. And if that ever ceases to take place, their option is death. That's it. I remember one time being in high school and we watched a documentary on kids in India and the lowest caste in India who wake up every day and they go to the garbage, the garbage piles outside their slum and they dig through trash just looking for food. And yet we as Christians, fat and happy, are marked by wanting more and more and more things. How, much, how many times do you browse Amazon? Or you go to the store and you just see what's there. I'm not saying it's wrong to shop. I want to be really clear. It's not wrong to shop. It's not wrong to buy things. It is wrong when these things control us. The average American household spends around $300 for entertainment every month, just entertainment, subscriptions, gaming, movies, going to see shows. The average U.S. household spends $146 per month on clothing. Actually, with five kids who are all growing, that doesn't seem that bad. <laughs> to quote another source, the average American dines out 5.9 times per week. I don't know why they didn't just round up, round up to six, but dines out 5.9 times per week. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, the average American household spends around $3,500 on eating out every year, or just shy of $300 per month. The average American family of four spends approximately $2,000 on a four-day vacation every year. And at Christmas of 2002, and quoting another source, these are all various sources you can find on the internet, holiday shoppers in 2022, holiday shoppers spent approximately $823 on average for a total of more than $178 billion in Christmas gift spending, cumulatively. Now, these things aren't wrong. These things aren't bad in and of themselves. 
I cite these statistics to point out the fact that the accumulation of possessions and things is a hallmark of our culture, so much that we can become inundated to the reality that the temptation for coveting and jealousy and envy and greed is around us. It's the very air we breathe. It's the waters we swim in. And I do think that without realizing it, we fall into this trap of the devil way more often than we're willing to acknowledge. Jealousy and greed, if they are left unchecked in your life, will destroy you. Coveting will destroy you. It may not destroy your life as quickly as an act of infidelity would. It may not destroy your life as quickly as a fit of murderous rage would or foolishness where you say something you can't take back, but if it's left unchecked, covetousness, greed, jealousy, envy, discontentment will destroy you. How do we respond to this? Well, let's look at the outline for our message, the basic structure that we uh, as pastors have been seeking to apply to these various topics. These are our five points. Uh, And the title for the message, before we dive into the outline, is Desiring Our Own Destruction. Desiring Our Own Destruction. We're going to be all over the Bible. The goal of this series, I hope you've recognized it by now, is to demonstrate that the scriptures are absolutely sufficient for these issues. We live in a world where people will say, you don't need the scriptures to face these hard issues. That cannot be further from the truth. The scriptures are completely, totally, 100% sufficient to address these spiritual issues in our hearts. So we're gonna be all over the Bible, looking at this issue of jealousy, covetousness, envy, desiring our own destruction. And here's our simple outline. We'll just put it up there and... Contrary to my normal pattern, this is it. This is the outline for tonight. First, we're going to look at defining the concepts. Then we're going to be looking at examining the struggle caused by jealousy and discontentment. Follow, we can just put it all up. Evaluating the proposed remedies, considering the likely results of following these remedies, and cultivating godly growth. First, let's define our concepts. We want to define our terms. What do we mean by jealousy, envy, greed, discontentment? Well, as always, we've been looking towards modern psychology's definitions. Modern psychology is sort of a misnomer. There is no such one thing as just psychology. There are psychologies. There are various schools of psychology, and they often disagree and differ with one another. It's actually a logical fallacy to appeal to just generally, well, psychology says. Well, the psychologists today are going to be regarded as hacks 10 years from now, I promise you, because that what was in 15 years ago is outdated now. But... Generally speaking, we're looking at the American Psychological Association, and their definitions of jealousy, envy, and greed, you might find surprisingly, are not too far off from what the Bible would define jealousy, envy, and greed. There's not too much disagreement on how to define these terms. There's a world of disagreement on how to address these issues. Jealousy, APA, Dictionary of Psychology says this, a negative emotion in which an individual resents a third party for appearing to take away or being likely to take away the affections of a loved one. Jealousy requires a triangle of social relationships between three individuals, the one who is jealous, the partner with whom the jealous individual has or desires a relationship, and the rival who represents a preemptive threat to that relationship. Romantic relationships are the prototypic source of jealousy, but any significant relationship with parents, friends, etc., is capable of producing it. It differs from envy in that three people are always involved. I think some other... Counselors would say it could be things, jealousy is essentially this, an attitude of fierce possessiveness over something you currently have, something or someone you currently have, and you don't want to lose it. 
but it's to the point that you're willing to sin to keep it. An attitude of fierce possessiveness over something you currently have that you're not willing to lose and you're willing to sin to hold on to it. Envy, APA defines it this way, a negative emotion of discontent and resentment generated by desire for possessions, attributes, qualities, or achievements of another. Unlike jealousy, which shares certain similarities and with which it is often confused, envy need involve only two individuals, the envious person and the person envied, whereas jealousy always involves three. In essence, envy can be summed up this way, an attitude of desiring something specifically that you don't have. You want to be tall like that person. You want to have that person's car. You want to have the new iPhone like that other person has. It's looking at something or someone and saying, I desire that. Jealousy, sinfully holding on to what you do have. Envy, coveting something you don't have. What about greed? Here's a study, a scientific report from 2019 from the National Library of Medicine on a neural perspective of when and why trait greed comes at the expense of others. I remember reading that thinking, you guys couldn't have come up with a more catchy title. But anyway, they define greed this way. Uh, scientists Patrick Mussel and Johannes Hewig define greed this way. At its heart, greed can be defined as an excessive desire for more, thus emphasizing a state of insatiability associated with the striving for obtaining desired goods. As opposed to mere accumulation, greed may be characterized by hazarding potentially negative consequences that result from one's own actions, an excessive desire for more at all costs that may be at the expense of others. So jealousy, being willing to sinfully hold on to something you do have, but you're scared to lose it. Envy, coveting something you don't have. Greed is more of a general craving for just more. I want more. It's like John Rockefeller on his deathbed. How much would be, how much would be enough? Just one more dollar, he said, before he passed away. Jealousy, envy, and greed can all fall under the umbrella of discontentment, of not being content, not being thankful, not being grateful for your present circumstances, which a good, loving, wise, sovereign God has wisely placed you in. That brings us to our biblical definition. Believe it or not, the biblical definitions have much in agreement with the secular definitions. Jealousy, we see this word show up in many verses. Uh, Proverbs 6.34, jealousy says, uh, Proverbs 6.34 says, For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. Talking about uh, Solomon's warning his reader, don't engage yourself with a married woman because the jealousy of a husband will, will enact vengeance upon you. Strong's defines it this way, ardor, zeal, in various circumstances. It can even be a type of um, romantic passion. Now, jealousy from a biblical perspective can actually have a good context or a bad context. It can be a good meaning or a bad meaning. God is described as a jealous God in both the Old and New Testament, and that's good. Biblically speaking, jealousy itself is not always bad. God desires his people's worship, and that's good because he deserves his people's worship. Righteous men and women are described as being jealous for the house of God. Noble Israelites, think of Phineas. Remember Phineas, the book of Numbers? He, he sees uh, Israelite and a Moabite having inappropriate relationships at the household of the tabernacle, the front door of the tabernacle. He gets up, he takes a spear, and he spears them right through because he was jealous for the house of God, and he gets a commendation for it. Depending on the context, jealousy can be a good thing. But if jealousy 
is a cover for idolatry, wanting to hold on to something so badly that you're willing to sin to keep it, then jealousy becomes evil. Related to jealousy is this term coveting. The world doesn't normally use the term coveting, but coveting shows up throughout Scripture, so we need to define it. Mark 7, 21 through 23, the Lord Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, slander, pride, foolishness. And you see right on the heels of sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, without, there were no verse breaks when the Lord Jesus spoke. In that same list, in the same breath, he said coveting. Coveting in the Greek is a word that means greedy desire to have more, covetousness, avarice. Essentially, it's another term for greed. Envy is a word used by Scripture as well. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 lists the works of the flesh. The passage that Paul says right before the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says, if you have the works of the flesh, you are not on your way to eternity with God in heaven. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. You think, well, I haven't done any of those. What comes next? Envy. He sends, at the end of that passage, he ends it saying, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If your life is marked by envy and coveting, you are not part of God's family. Greed, the Lord mentions greed. It's a different Greek term, Matthew 23, 25. Condemning the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. This is a Greek term that can refer to actually the idea of robbery. It's like heart robbery, plunder, and spoil. Think of like a pirate. I'm not talking about like Jack Sparrow pirate. I'm talking about like a real pirate. They were evil, wicked people who all they did were sail the seas and find others that they could murder and steal from. That's the same thing fueling your heart when you give in to greed. So really, when we look at things, there might be some differencing of nuances but the way that the world defines these terms and the way that the Bible defines these terms are not too different. But let's see the struggles caused by jealousy and discontentment. Our second point, what happens? What happens if we lead lives that are marked by jealousy, envy, and greed? Well, first of all, we need to ask, what are the types of things that we are jealous for, greedy for, envious of? One of the chief texts that points us to what people usually covet after is 1 John 2, 15 through 17. John writes to his readers, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world. And now he breaks it down for us. And he gives us three helpful categories to kind of understand what do people covet after? What, what, will they, what do they desire? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, the pride of life. All that is in the world. I have yet to find a sin. Maybe someone can come up and tell me one later. I have yet to think of a sin that doesn't fall into at least one if not multiple of those categories. The desires of the flesh, these are base carnal desires. This would include the desire for passion, for pleasure, for comfort, for indulging the whims of your body. This is what drives people who are addicted to pornography, the gratification. It's also what drives people who are addicted to sleeping in, and laziness, couch potatoes, lust of the flesh, Anything that feels good. The desires of the eyes. 
This is anything you set your eyes on. We're gonna talk a little bit about a man named Ahab who woke up one day and saw a vineyard and he said, I want that. And it led to murder and damnation of his own soul. Desires of the eyes. Anything you set your eyes on. Possessions, cars, clothes, phones, whatever. And the boastful pride of life. This is your reputation. What people think of you. Your image. I love being having been a youth pastor, I love high school students, junior high students, but there's a difference between junior high and high school students. It grieves me, happens all the time. In junior high, most of them don't care about their image. They care a little bit, but they don't know enough to like not care. You have to actually help them like, hey buddy, deodorant's a good idea, right? But something happens when they get into high school. Something happens when they get into high school, all of a sudden, there's this massive temptation to be controlled by your image of what people think of you. What a pitfall, what a tool of the evil one to seal away some of the most formative years of a young person's life, the boastful pride of life. These are the big three things that people crave after, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. If they're left unchecked, careers can be ruined, laziness gets you fired, embezzlement gets you arrested, marriages can be devastated, coveting after, someone that's not your spouse can lead to horrific consequences, breakdown of trust that could take years to be rebuilt, if at all. Families can be broken. Reputations can be disgraced. And individuals can be driven to despair, depression, and as we're gonna see from the scripture, murder, and even in some terrible cases, suicide. If these things are left unchecked, the scripture actually points out specific instances of those categories we just listed. James 4, 1 through 4, shows us that greed and envy and, and jealousy left unchecked leads to interpersonal conflict. James 4, 1 through 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Almost every time that there's a conflict between Two people, especially this happens a lot in marriage counseling, when there's a conflict between the husband and the wife, one of the first questions a, a wise counselor should ask is, okay, what do you have that you are scared to lose or what do you not have that you are fighting for to get? Because usually it's our coveting, our idolatry, our, envious, our enviousness, our jealousy prompts us to fight. These things left unchecked lead to interpersonal conflict. They lead to profound emptiness. Proverbs 11.7 warns us when the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too. Proverbs is, is full of warnings that wealth has wings. You try to set your focus on it, and it flies away, never to be caught again. It's insatiable. Profound emptiness is seen in Proverbs 30, verses 15 through 16. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire never says enough. The writer of that Proverbs is warning against a spirit that says, I want more, I want more, I want more. He says, what you're being like is a leech. You're being like the grave that can never be filled. Covetousness left unchecked leads to interpersonal conflict. It leads to profound emptiness. As we mentioned earlier, it can lead even all the way up to murder. 1 Kings 21, 1 through 19. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. If it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. 
But Nabal said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned his face away and would eat no food. A grown man, a king of a nation, is having a temper tantrum and a pouty fit because he can't have what he wants. And ultimately, because of his own sin and because of the instigation of his wicked wife Jezebel, it leads to the conspiracy and murder of Naboth. Then verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Envy unchecked leads to profound emptiness, leads to murder, can lead to blasphemy. Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove from me, far from me, falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. One of the key texts on this issue of coveting and not being satisfied with what God has given you is Jeremiah 2, 9 through 13. The Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah, indicting the people of Judah, Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or excuse me, send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are not gods? Listen to this, Jeremiah 2, verse 11. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It is blasphemous to give your life over to idolatry of things, coveting things. Ultimately, it can lead to apostasy. We don't have time to go through. I I did think about just sticking in this one chapter, Psalm 73, but Asaph. The worship leader of Israel wrestled with this. Psalm 73, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. How, Asaph? How did you almost stumble? And by the way, in an Old Testament understanding, to stumble, especially you're talking about in relation to God, means to fall away from God. How did you get this close to the brink of apostasy, Asaph? Verse 3, Psalm 73, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus. Asaph shows us he gets up right up to the edge of saying it's not worth it to follow God. I'm going after stuff. Verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have turned my back on God's people. Matthew 19 you know this story. You need to just hear verse 22 of Matthew 19. When the rich young ruler, when the young man heard this, Jesus had said to him, verse 21, if you'd be perfect, go sell what your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Unless God interacted in some sovereign act of saving mercy, and we don't know, Scripture doesn't tell us, unless that happened, 
that man sealed his fate. He knew he needed something. He ran up to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? He knew something was wrong, but he wasn't willing to part with his stuff. He held on to it, and ultimately it held on to him. 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes to Timothy to warn people in the church about the dangers of holding on to the things of this world. He talks about people who are puffed up with conceit and they understand nothing. Uh, Verse 5, their lives are marked by constant friction upon people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Jump down to verse 9 of 1 Timothy 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What's interesting is that in the follow-up letter in 2 Timothy, Paul will have a specific name to attach to this type of mindset. One of his fellow co-laborers who had abandoned him and abandoned God ultimately, Demas. Demas was in love with the present world. That's his his indictment. He loved this world. So what happens if our lives have these things unchecked? Ultimately, apostasy and damnation. Luke 12, 13 through 21 is the parable of the rich fool. (sighs) Verse 17, Luke 12. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Because his barns are all full. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Luke 9, 23 through 25. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would, lo- would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. Ultimately, this sin will destroy you. I mean, it brought untold thousands of years of pain to the entire human race. The entrance of sin into the very human race, bringing thousand years of woe, sorrow, grief, and pain, began because of covetousness. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Examining the struggle, ultimately we're left with this. Greed and covetousness left unchecked will destroy you and all those around you. So let's evaluate the proposed remedies. How does the world suggest that we deal with this idea of wanting more things, desiring more stuff, or being fiercely protective of that which we have to the point that we're willing to fight for it? Here's the worldly advice. There's a medically reviewed 2019 article entitled 12 Ways to Let Go of Jealousy. And it says this. One, trace jealousy back to the source. Sit down and do some self-introspection. See, okay, where's this jealousy coming from? Two, voice your concerns of jealousy to your partner or your loved one. Specifically, this advice is about if you're jealous over your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, talk to that person. Just share with them where you're at. Three, talk to a trusted friend, an outside third party, someone who could provide some perspective, help you see things a little more clearly. Four, I thought this one was interesting. Put a different spin on jealousy. Here's a quote from the article. Jealousy can be a complex, strong emotion, and you might not feel very good when you're dealing with it. But instead of thinking of it as something negative, try looking at it as a helpful source of information. Jealousy, according to licensed mental health counselor Sarah Swenson, says, tells you that there's a difference between what you have and what you want. That's interesting. Five, consider the full picture. 
Jealousy sometimes develops in response to a partial picture. This is another quote from the article. Jealousy sometimes develops in response to a partial picture. In other words, you might be comparing yourself and your own achievements and attributes to an idealized or incomplete view of someone else. People dis typically display their best selves to the world, so it's not always easy to tell what's really happening in someone else, else's life or relationship. There's the whole issue of social media, which magnifies this concept, but you never truly know what someone's going through, especially when you're just looking at social media. Your college friend with the Facebook photos of her and her husband out in a meadow looking so carefree and happy, for all you know, they argued all the way out there and they're sweating bullets under all that matching plaid. I thought that was kind of funny. You know, uh, Bart calls Facebook fake book, and I refer to Instagram as Instasham, right? Everybody puts their best idealized versions of themselves on these things. And often people are lying. Six, advice. Practice gratitude for what you have. Seven, practice in the moment coping techniques. Write down what you feel, take a walk, give yourself some space by leaving the situation. Take 10 minutes to do something else that's calming. Eight, explore underlying issues. Nine, remember your own value. 10, practice mindfulness, and we don't have time. That's a whole thing, uh, mindfulness. Yeah, that's a whole thing. Give it time is tip 11, and then the last tip of this secular article, talk to a therapist. Now, here's the thing. I don't agree with everything in that article. In fact, some of the latter suggestions I definitely don't agree with. But some of those first suggestions in the article are things that I've told people and in response to dealing with their own issues as well. I agree with several of the suggestions in this article. I've even offered some of them as tips in my own counsel to people dealing with jealousy, envy, discontentment. But here's the main crux of where the world's advice falls short. There's no role for Christ. There's no role for Christ in any of this. We can't forget that the reason why we're here, the reason why we're a part of this church, the reason why you have a Bible sitting on your lap, the reason why you have any hope at all in your life, the reason why we get up in the morning is because of Jesus Christ. There is no answer for jealousy or discontentment apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. You can follow the best advice of the world, but if Christ doesn't play a role, you're never going to slay your discontentment, your envy, your jealousy, or your greed. How do we practically do this? How do we practically deal with our jealousy and envy in a way that honors God? Well, as we just said just a few minutes ago, it has to revolve, it has to begin and end with, revolve around the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Philippians 4, 10 through 13. You probably thought we were going to get there sooner than now. Sorry about that. But Philippians 4, 10 through 13. Setting the context a little bit, Paul is in prison. Now, he's not in a filthy, stinking prison. Most likely, he's in a nice house, under house arrest, maybe a small home. But he's not free. He's chained to a Roman guard 24-7, and he's reliant upon the kindness of others to meet his needs. The circumstances that we see him in writing Philippians are almost undoubtedly the circumstances we see Paul in the end of the book of Acts when he's under house arrest in the city of Rome. And he writes this, verse 10 of chapter 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know, when you consider Paul's life and what he gave up to follow Christ, it's pretty impressive. Paul lived in Israel 2,000 years ago in a time in world history where about 90 to 95% of everybody did sweaty manual labor in a world that had no air conditioning and no indoor plumbing. Sweaty manual labor to earn their bread. Paul had one of the few jobs, one of the few roles in the world at that time that meant he could be in comfort, indoors, have access to money, have access to prestige, to be looked up and respected. There's Rabbi Paul. He's the young hotshot Pharisee. He's rising through the ranks. He's the one who held the cloaks while they were stoning that heretic Stephen. He had, he had the best possible life that a Jew could have 2,000 years ago living under Roman-occupied Palestine. And he gave it all up to follow Christ. And it wasn't just that he gave it all up to follow Christ and then he just lived a regular normal life as a merchant or a fisherman, but he became a missionary. He followed God's call on his life. He was beaten, he was whipped, he was mocked, he was insulted, he was at danger on the road, he said, danger in the, in the cities, dangers on the roads, shipwrecked, arrested, falsely accused, betrayed by friends, and he did it. He did it for over 30 years just to bring glory to Christ. You would think that at some point in his life, he might be tempted to look back and say, Lord, what gives? I've given so much for you. I know I, know I deserve hell, right? We would say things like that. I know I deserve hell, but man, I've given a lot. Can I get a break? But what does he say in Philippians 4? Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. He's talking about his heart attitude no matter what is on his plate. Whether he has a full feast that he can't finish because he's so stuffed, or whether he is starving and would be thankful for just a few crumbs of bread. He says, I know how to have the heart attitude to do this. What is the heart attitude? It's my position in Christ. Verse 13, I can do all things, all of these things, facing abundance, facing need, facing plenty, facing hunger. In the times where I have to get a new belt and the times I have to tighten my old belt, I can do it all through Christ who strengthens me. The secret to facing envy and discontentment is your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my favorite passages in the book of Hebrews is Hebrews 13, five through six, where the writer says to the Hebrew Christians, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? What's the key? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Think about this. The answer to discontentment, the silver bullet to keep the temptation of envy and jealousy away is dwelling on your relationship with Jesus Christ that can never change. You could be arrested. You could have everything taken away from you. You could be left behind by your family, by your friends. They could all ostracize you. But if you have Christ, if you have Jesus, then you have everything you ever need. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Friends, you must find your joy in Christ. 
Not only that, you must invest yourself in God's agenda. We talked earlier about 1 Timothy 6 and the danger of those who think that godliness is a means of, great, a means of gain, of earthly gain, filthy lucre, as some called it. Then there's advice. Well, what, ha- what about those who have money? And frankly, if you're the average American, you have money. You have money. Compared to, you may not have more than the person sitting next to you in the pew, but you've got more than the people in Uganda and Brazil. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. What's the easy way of summing all that up? Align your heart and your agenda with God's heart and God's agenda, and discontentment, uh, discontentment won't be a temptation for you. If you are walking in step with what God wants, then the things of this world will have so much less a grip on your soul. Align yourself in God, with God's agenda. Find your ultimate satisfaction in God alone. Psalm 63, one through eight. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. I remember being a college student and reading Psalm 63 and saying like, Lord, I don't feel that. We were um, in Israel and David wrote this most likely uh, on the edge of the Dead Sea where it's hot and dusty and barren. And he wrote Psalm 63 in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And I remember reading that and thinking, Lord, I, I don't feel that way about you. Would you change my heart? Would you give me the heart that craves after you, God? Well, we're out of time. Let's just briefly land this plane. Consider the results of various remedies for dealing with jealousy and discontentment. Friends, it's, it's really this. If you follow any other remedy, your discontentment will just take, a different, just take a different head. It'll just show up a different way. It's like a weed. If you don't get the root, the weed will pop back up. It's like the mythical hydra. Hercules cut off the one head and then more sprang up. If you don't deal with this at the root, it'll just show up in other situations. Rick Holland, my college pastor, said this about um, people who just wanted to be married for the sake of being married. They didn't actually love the person they were dating. They just hated being single. He said this, discontent singles make discontent spouses. That's true. I've seen people make horrible mistakes in their lives because they rushed into marriage, not because they actually loved the person they were dating. They just didn't want to be single. You don't change your heart by just changing your circumstances. The only silver bullet that will change your discontent heart is finding satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other remedy. All the other things that the world will offer you will fail. So what are some practical tips? I've got 10 for you, and we're already out of time. Here's some practical pastoral tips. We'll go through these quickly. If you want my notes, email me, and I'll send them to you. First, recognize the disgusting evil of discontentment for what it is. We often think it's not that bad of a sin, but Jeremiah 2, it's an abomination. Jeremiah Burroughs, he wrote the book on contentment. Uh, He says this, Oh, that we could but convince men and women that murmuring spirit is a greater evil than any affliction, whatever the affliction. Recognize the disgusting evil of discontentment. Second tip, rest in the sovereignty of God over your circumstances and your possessions. You have what God has ordained for you to have. I'm not saying it's wrong to work hard. I am saying it's wrong to covet. Work hard, provide for your family. But at the end of the day, rest in the sovereignty of God. He has given you the salary that you have. He's given you the vacations that you have. He's given you the house that you have. Recognize his sovereignty. When we start to practice discontentment and envy, 
what we're saying to God is, God, you made a mistake along the way. Somewhere, God, you messed up because I want something different than what you've provided for me. Rest in the sovereignty of God over your circumstances and over your possessions. Third, remove yourself from whatever is tempting you towards discontentment. Matthew 5 talks about radical amputation, and normally that is in the context of of lust. But what is lust but a specified form of discontentment? The Lord Jesus says, do whatever you need to do to remove that sin from you. For some of you, that means deleting Instagram and Facebook or whatever else social media app you use. If going on these apps causes you to crave things you don't have and then you wind up spending your time thinking how you can get that and moving the budget around so you can get the Pottery Barn stuff or whatever, or anthropology or whatever, you know, all this stuff, right? Get rid of it. It's gonna burn. It's gonna burn. And, and trust me, I have to tell my, not so much with Pottery Barn, but like, <laughs> yeah, okay. It's going to burn, which is our fourth point. Hold the things of this world with a very loose hand. Not only will it all be burnt up one day, but it can be taken from you quickly. It, it, could, be, it could vanish tomorrow. I mean, <laughs> the stock market is a real weird thing, isn't it? I don't understand it, but I know that it's precarious at times. Things could all fall apart. Inflation could go way back up. All of a sudden, we're paying $10 for eggs. It could all go away. Hold it with a very loose hand. Don't set your heart on it. Fifth, instead, align your heart with God's unstoppable agenda. We, we waste so much time on our sports teams. I, there's not a darn thing we can do to get our sports teams to win games. None of us did anything to have the Chiefs win the Super Bowl. I mean, it was cool when they won the Super Bowl, but none of us did anything with that. And yet we invest our heart, souls, time, money, focus. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying, what are we doing? You have the opportunity to be part of something that is unstoppable, the church. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against this. I'm not saying this just because this is where I get my paycheck, but give your time, money, and energy to the church. Let's not give it to our teams or to musicians. Or, I mean, it's not wrong to like sports or music, but invest in something that's eternal. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Next summer, go on a missions trip. Shouldn't just be 50 GBC people go on a mission trip. Let's have all 600 go on mission trips. I think I just gave Josue a heart attack. Six, rejoice in Christ who will never leave you nor forsake you. We should all commit to memory Hebrews 13, 5, and 6. Be content with what things you have, for he who has promised has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Rejoice in Christ will never leave you, forsake you. If you are truly saved, then Christ himself is your treasure. Seven, fix your heart on heaven where you'll enjoy fellowship with God for all eternity. Marinate in Revelation 21 and 22. Eight, read the word every day so that your desires are transformed. Nine, beg for a new heart with new desires that long after what God wants you to want, ask God for the strength that comes from Christ. Burroughs writes this, indeed our afflictions may be heavy and we cry out, oh, we cannot bear them, we cannot bear such an affliction. Though you cannot tell how to bear it with your own strength, Yet how you can tell what you will do with the strength of Jesus Christ. Yet how can you tell what you will do with the strength of Jesus Christ? You say you cannot bear it, so you think that Christ could not bear it? But if Christ could bear it, why may you not come to bear it? You will say, can I have the strength of Christ? Yes, Burroughs writes. Yes, it is made over to you by faith. The scripture says the Lord is our strength. God himself is our strength. Christ is our strength. Ask God for the strength that comes from Christ to be content with your circumstances. And 10, Actively seek to count your blessings every day. 
We could have spent so much time in Psalm 103, but the psalmist reminds himself, forget none of his benefits. We have so much to be thankful for. Let's not let greed and envy and jealousy and covetousness ruin our lives, but instead find satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone who can never be taken away from you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this series, how we've been able to see that the word is more than sufficient to help us respond to these sins and temptations of the heart. Please help us to find our joy and satisfaction in you alone. Forgive us for when we have given our hearts over to idols. Lord, help us to invest in your agenda and the things that matter to you eternally. We pray this in your name.